Well, this little clicker, I'm going to try to use it if Mitch didn't break it. No, <laughs> sorry, no, just kidding. Uh, no, I, there's some pictures on the screen, and the kind of the heading I want you to think of as we see some of these pictures, and I, don't, I realize this is a small screen for a big room, and it may not uh, work like I have in my mind, but, but things aren't always as they appear. Things aren't always as they seem. This picture, number one, what does it look like to you, perhaps? You look like you're in an airplane, maybe? Looking down on a snowy field, some ponds. Well, it's just a, it's a few puddles on the ground. There's a little rock in there that give you some perspective. Uh, the next picture. Any thoughts? Kind of ocean. Looks like on the back of a cruise ship, I think, and kind of uh, the, 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 the water and uh, waves off the back of a cruise liner at night, perhaps. It's just a frozen sidewalk. <laughs> uh, this one, I think it looks like a cigarette in an ashtray, but it's just a fallen pole laying on some rocks. Um, but what we're saying is things aren't always as they seem, always as they appear, in particular when you sp- spread out and get some broader perspective. You can see the way things really are. This last one's for you, just to, because I'm an old man now. Facebook, Instagram, social media, things aren't always as they appear on those uh, platforms and, and other versions of these. You can say, okay, boomer. Um, but but we, we understand that, that, that we can just kind of give a, a small perspective of, of, and that maybe is not the true picture of reality. And so some zoomed in way. So things aren't always as they seem. Well, the triumphal entry, and I'm going to turn it over to you, Luke, so I'm done. Uh, the triumphal entry is one of those moments. It's, it, it is, we call it the triumphal entry, but in, in a lot of ways, it's not so triumphal, is it? I mean, because the appearance and, and the perception of this event that, that J.K. read is, in a lot of ways, very different from reality. You have these festive, you have this festive scene with all these crowds of people laying down palm branches in the street, this shouts of victory, you know, Hosanna, uh, oh, save, that's what that means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. And this singing and celebration and all of the shouting and this, it's like this incredible victory parade. And yet many of those same people will just in a few short uh, days be shouting to the same one, oh, crucify him, crucify him. And so these, these crowds see this victory parade and they think that's what they're participating in. But Jesus knows in reality it's a death march. He's, he's heading to the cross, to the cross. We, we need that widened perspective that scripture gives us to understand what's really happening there. Well, the reality, and so back into Acts here, the reality of the early days of church, of the, uh, early days of the church, it also kind of challenges our perceptions. And depending on what we're zoomed in on, we can get a distorted uh, understanding of what's happening. We don't get the full picture. And so I've heard many, many say, and I probably said this when I was younger as well, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could just go back and be part of that early church in Acts? And wouldn't that be incredible? Well, maybe. But which, which part of that early church do you want to go back to? I mean, there's the growing like crazy, you know, evangelism explosion, on fire kind of church. And so tens of thousands of new believers, you know, coming to faith in Christ, meeting in these hundreds of house churches across the city of Jerusalem. You know, no church bureaucracy yet, no constitution and bylaws and websites and all of these 
uh, committees and all of that stuff yet. Just the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. These Christ-appointed apostles that are that are working to keep things cohesive and keep things moving ahead in the right direction. That would be wonderful, right? Sure, sign me up for that. But not everything, as we've already seen and will continue to see, is is again just kind of butterflies and daisies. It's not. It, there are these. There's this severe growing persecution that's coming from the outside, threats, imprisonment, beatings, soon to be martyrdom. There are problems within, hypocrisy and greed and, and, and dishonesty, now grumbling and suspicion and division, and there's going to be many more that come. And so Luke doesn't just paper over these problems. He's a realist. He, and, and he wants us to see the early church uh, with warts and everything. And so, because he wants us to see this isn't just some social experiment of the, uh, of the apostles or of some men and women in the early church. This is the work of Christ. The ongoing work of Christ building His church through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That's what this is about. It's His work. And so, a couple other quick introductory comments before we get into the text itself. But let me just say these two statements. One, this is about more than food distribution. What Mitch just read a moment ago. This is about the Great Commission. What's happening here? In other words, I, I know we, if you've ever read, read books, if you're a deacon and you've, you know, any kind of deacon training, you're going to come to Acts 6 and, and this is often seen as kind of this prototype of the, what became the office of deacon. And I'm not, it certainly has much to say about that. And I think it can be useful, but it's not an early manual for deacon selection or deacon ministry. That's not what this is about. It, it maybe, maybe we have some of those early roots, but that's not why this is recorded. That's not what Luke had in mind as he wrote these words. This is about the progress of the gospel. God advancing, Christ advancing his word in this world. And so a couple of ways we see this. Oh, and remember how Jesus began, how this book of Acts began. Jesus' words to the disciples before his ascension, so after his resurrection, before he sends back to heaven, ascends back to heaven, he, he meets with his disciples and he promises his followers that the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to and fill them and come upon them and empower them. And then he says in verse 8 of chapter 1, you will be my witnesses, what in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We said that verse becomes Kind of the key verse in the book of Acts. And it, it is, Luke sort of uses that to give the outline and the structure of everything that he writes throughout the rest of the book. And so in chapters one to seven, which is where we're at right now, we, we see the beginning, we see the, the witness, the, the beginning, the growing, ministering, suffering church in Jerusalem primarily. So we're all still in Jerusalem at this point. In chapters 8 though, 8 to 12 though, we're going to see the gospel extending beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 to 28, we see the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so from Antioch and Syria, the gospel goes to Cyprus, and then it goes into what's modern day Turkey and beyond from there. But what we're going to see uh, as we walk through these, and we don't have time to spend a lot of time on this right now, but what we're going to see as we come to those places, at every point of transition in that that expanding uh, uh, expansion of the gospel, every one of those transitions, the seven are there. And I don't mean the seven as a group, but I mean that they're, 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 their impact is seen and is noted by Luke. And so the ones that are set apart for this ministry of mercy in Acts chapter 6, they end up being significant as the gospel goes 
from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And then at the joint again as the gospel goes from there to the ends of the earth. And so we're, we're, we're going to note these. And so this isn't incidental. This is this section is not just, uh, again, kind of a random few verses on, you know, how to deal with you know, logistical challenges in the church or, you know, how to identify deacons. That's not it. This is key to the structure of the book. This that's what this episode in chapter six is setting up the gospel's expansion. And so this 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 is pivotal to the entire structure of the story as Luke has recorded this. And so these seven servers, they they won't they won't just be critical in meeting the needs of these certain widows in this particular episode. They will be critical in the spread and the expansion of the gospel. And so they will be important links in the chain of the gospel going from there to the ends of the earth, which is what the only reason that any of us are sitting here right here today. And so I just I say all that because I want you to see. See, this is bigger than often the way we look at this particular passage. And we see this, uh, this being a pivotal passage in another way, as Luke writes. So in each of those sections, each of those joints of those sections between Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, the seven are there. There's also this repeated phrase and theme in each of those sections, and it's this, is the word of God continued to increase. We'll see that refrain. The word is almost personified. It's this word has this force that it's growing and it's increasing. It's this organic image of the word growing in the church, the gospel bearing fruit and the word growing and the number of disciples multiplying. In chapter 6, verse 7, we see this statement that we just read in Jerusalem. In chapter 12, verse 24, it's going to be said again about the gospel going into Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 19, Verse 20, as the gospel goes to the end of the ends of the earth, the text says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So in our section today, this ministry of the word that's in focus and this ministry of mercy that this passage is dealing with, they're both in view here. And the, the seven are involved in, in that mercy ministry. Primarily, that's what they're set apart for. But we're going to see in the next chapters, they're going to go where the apostles don't go, preaching the word. But, but the twelve, they'll keep devoting themselves to the ministry of the word and the prayer. But the way Luke structures the whole narrative, and this is the point, the whole narrative of Acts shows that those ministries are mutually supportive. They are. The, the seven are there at each new expanding horizon as the gospel goes out. And, and it shows how mercy ministry supports this growing word. That's the, that's what Luke's really driving at. And so the other statement I'll make real quick. Is the one is 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 this that this did not come out of, in, of this didn't come out of nowhere? It's terrible grammar, but you get the point. There's a backstory here, and so Jesus's own ministry of word and deed is is here, and, and we need to see it against that backdrop. Jesus, remember, he spoke word, he spoke with words of power, and he did works of power. This was his ministry, particularly as Luke records it in the Gospel of Luke. He preached with authority, not as the Jewish scribes. And he healed people of their diseases, and he cleansed lepers, and he raised the dead, and he calmed the storm. And so remember when Jesus was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he, they don't know who he is, he's just a stranger, and 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 um, and, and they're explaining to Jesus who this stranger Jesus is. Or to this stranger. So they call, they call him, how do they describe him? A man who was a prophet. How? 
mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. That's Jesus. Mighty, He comes in deed, and He comes in word. And Luke's Gospel account over and over emphasizes that dual reality. And so when Luke starts his second volume, which is the book of Acts, he says, remember remember book one? Remember the Gospel of Luke? How it was all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. He began what he began to do and teach until the day of his ascension. And so what he's saying and in, in, in phrasing it that way is the book of Acts is basically the continuation of what Jesus continues to do and teach through the Holy Spirit. He's still active in deed and in word in the church and in the world through the church. So again, see it against the backdrop of Christ and His ministry, word and deed. Then we come to Pentecost, and we saw this, and Jesus sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to indwell His people and, and to continue so that He can continue speaking and working through His people, through us. And so when the seven are sent out here, or set apart here in chapter 6, it's not like they don't already have the Holy Spirit. They've already been indwelt by the Spirit, already anointed by Christ to serve. And then we see this borne out in what follows and what we've seen up to this point. Growing uh, this, this flow, growth that's flowing from Pentecost, they continued to speak the word and perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember even how they pray, Lord, grant your servants boldness to speak as you perform signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant Jesus. So deeds and words. We've seen this throughout the first chapters. And, and, the, and, the, and as this is happening, there's this incredible growth that we've seen. 3,000 souls added on the day of Pentecost. 5,000 men uh, again. And, and who knows how many women and children. There, we saw in chapter 5, there are even greater multitudes than that coming to faith in Christ and following Him. And so kind of the, the big heading, if we could pull back and then we'll jump right into the text, is, is this word growth Supported by compassionate deeds, it fosters church growth. I think that's the kind of the overarching theme that we see and how this is positioned and as the gospel is begin is going to begin after Stephen to go out through one of the seven to go out into Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So all that background to the text that we're looking at. Let's jump in. So three points this morning. I'll give them to you quickly. You don't have to write them down. We'll come back. First, God's blessing, it brings growth and diversity. God's blessing brings growth and diversity. Second, growth and diversity bring friction. And then third, God gives grace-gripped leaders to help. So first, God's blessing brings growth and diversity. So the Spirit's moving, the Word of Christ is spreading, multitudes are believing, the church is growing, we have this powerful work of God that we've been seeing and we continue to see today. And, and this blessing from God, it brings a lot of diversity. I know that's a buzzword, but what I mean is it brings different kinds of people and different kinds of needs. We see both of these. Different kinds of people, different kinds of needs. So remember at Pentecost, for this big festival where all of these pilgrims are coming, uh, Jewish pilgrims are coming from all over the world to, to be part of that celebration at Pentecost. And, and, they, and, and while they're there, uh, the Spirit comes and the apostles start preaching about Christ and thousands believe. You have people from all over the world that are coming and trusting in Christ. Now they're part of the church. Thousands of others have believed since Pentecost. And so the Jerusalem church from the very beginning is very 
is very diverse culturally and in particular, as we're going to see, linguistically. Different languages. And so it's explicit in the text. We have these two groups in particular. You remember, note, we have what he calls the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now what in the world is that? The Hellenists, they're Greek-speaking Jews. Their language, they're Jews, but they speak Greek. Now how in the world did that happen? Well, by bloodline and birth, they're no less, quote, Hebrew than the Hebrews. They're Jews. But after uh, the Jews were dispersed from the land, after their families have been out of the promised land for decades, for some of them generations at this point, uh, now many have come back and they've resettled in Jerusalem and in Israel. They've come back and resettled in the land. But they, they didn't grow up speaking Hebrew and Aramaic. It wasn't spoken where they lived. And so, again, this may have been your great-great-great-grandparents were the last Hebrew speakers in your family. So they speak Greek. That's the language they know. So, and they probably have adapted culturally to that Greek life outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, adopting many Greek customs. And so these Hellenists, they still worship Yahweh, the Lord alone. They still came to the temple for sacrifices and festivals. They still observed the law of Moses. I mean, these Jewish Hellenists, they hadn't, they hadn't at all abandoned their Jewish identity, but they had accommodated and adopted parts of Greek culture. And so, so they were this different minority population within Jerusalem and within Israel. And as we're going to see as they come to faith in Christ, this different group within the church. They made up, uh, most estimate, between 10 and 20% of the population in Jerusalem in this day. And so on the other hand, so you have the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, and then you have the, the quote, Hebrews. These are the real, the real Jewish Jews. These are the traditionally Jewish in all manner of life uh, Hebrews in their dress and their conduct and their customs and their food. They, they followed those customs. Uh, again, just being in Jerusalem recently, uh, you can note and, and our guide pointed out different sects of Judaism and you can see it in their dress and you can, some Hasidic Jews and they're, they're Orthodox and they, they, they have everywhere they go that you can identify them by their dress and by their appearance and by their hair and by their customs. And there are other modern Jews that would just look like you and me. And, um, and, and so you can, you can note this, but this was the case then in a, in a very drastic way. And so these Hebrews, they probably did speak Greek because that was the language of trade and within the Roman Empire. But their preferred language and their primary language, what they spoke in their home, the way they prayed in, in their hearts, it was always in Hebrew or Aramaic, which were very close, uh, languages. And so what we see though is the gospel is made inroads into both of these groups. Hellenists and the Hebrews. And the church is now comprised of new believers from both of these groups. And because of the language, language gap, there are likely Greek-speaking house churches and Aramaic-speaking house churches. Just like there were Greek-speaking synagogues in, in Jerusalem and Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem. Now the same thing has happened in the church. So you had different people, different cultures in the church, different languages even. They share this common bond in Jesus Christ. They share the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But from a human, human standpoint, as the church grew, there was this real, there were these real differences. Different people. And there were gender differences at play too, because widows are the ones that are highlighted here as being neglected. 
And these female women, widows at that time, they were desperately needy in the ancient world, particularly these ones. We'll see. Now, why, why were, why, how did you get all of these Greek speaking widows in Jerusalem? Why was this such a significant population? Well, it's probably something like this. This is sort of Justin's educated guest here. But you, you imagine, they, they probably moved back to the promised land with their husbands and, and after living in Greece or somewhere else in the Roman Empire, they wanted to return to the land of their fathers and, and, the, and like so many other people. And so when they moved back, though, their husbands die. And question, where are their children who are supposed to take care of them? Well, they're probably in Athens or Corinth or Cyrene or Rome or somewhere else in the Roman Empire. They're grown children and grandchildren. Again, they may have been there for generations. They didn't move back with them. They're, they're kind of rooted there. And so they, they're far from their grown children. They have no safety net to fall back on with them. And now, though, they've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're there as Greek-speaking Jews, uh, full, fully involved in, in, in Jewish life, and now, though, they hear the Gospel and they embrace Jesus as the Messiah. Now, what does the unbelieving Jewish community do with them now? Hey, you're not our problem anymore. You're, we, you know, you... You, uh, if you're with Jesus, if you're with them, then, then we're not going to help you anymore. And so it's probably something like that. And so they're in this very desperate situation. So what I mean, God's blessing, it brings this diversity of people and it brings this complex diversity of needs. This, these are good things. It's God's blessing and He's growing and, and all of these things, but it brings diversity of needs and people. And so there are material needs for these widows and other marginalized and needy people in the church. There are these logistical challenges, how we're going to meet those needs. And so you have food and other material source resources that are likely distributed through these different house churches, and those house churches speak different languages. And, and, and you have you know spiritual needs, you have... Uh, the internal needs of caring for the flock and the unity of the church and uh, uh, with these different groups and you have discipleship and teaching that needs to happen with these new believers and you have outward external needs there are you know you need they need to be looking for going out to and and seeking and calling and bringing Christ's lost sheep in as well you have all of this is blessing from God and the growth that it creates in the church it brings, it brings uh, this, the different and very complex needs as all these people are brought in, more than the apostles can handle on their own. That's the situation. And so I'll just say, Barak, as the Lord, as the Lord blesses and He uses us and He grows us by God's grace, we can expect different people, diversity of people, and different kinds of needs to emerge in the church. We've seen this. This is not anything you know new. Like, wow, I've never considered that. No, we we experience that. The makeup of the congregation should increasingly reflect the makeup of our community, which is again very diverse, not just ethnically, but in all kinds of ways, educationally and socioeconomically and culturally, and on and on. And there will be new and different needs that emerge: internal and external needs, needs inside the flock for greater unity across. Lines of division that run through our world. Uh, greater need for teaching and discipling as new believers come to faith and, and, and some will need milk and some will need meat. And how do we, how do we care for all so that all are growing? 
there'll be material needs that emerge within the church as people need help and then and 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 then there's going to be the need to keep living outwardly living out our remember we've talked about our sent identity as witnesses of Jesus Christ in our community and around the world and so so we can expect as God blesses there's going to be there's going to be growth but there's going to be this diversity different people different needs the second point growth and diversity it's a result of God's blessing. It, it often brings friction. It often brings friction. Now, so we're going to get to a problem here. We see it right away in verse 1. But before we see the problem, let's just say something positive first. They were engaging in mercy ministry here already. So, yes, there were challenges that presented themselves as they, as they did this, and they had, all, they had some disruptions to this, but they were already doing it through the apostles. There was already forward momentum here and I think that's commendable the church was already actively engaged in caring for the needs of widows and others that were in need in the church we saw this back in chapter four but all of the growth the diversity of people the diversity of needs it provided the right mix for some real tension a test we could say so verse one now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this friction shows up in these unresolved grievances over what I think is an unintended neglect. And so it all stems around the daily distribution. So food, probably some clothing, maybe even some, you know, some modest amounts of money that just for basic necessities of life, these were being distributed to those in need, particularly these widows that were in dire straits. And so some of the needy widows were being neglected or overlooked. In other words, some were being better cared for than others, which meant that some were consistently having their needs met, others were going hungry. And so while the complaint is, we're going to see, it's voiced along these ethnic lines, Hellenists, Hebrews. It doesn't seem to be any indication that was, you know, that, that that's the primary issue in terms of why this was done, as if it was, you know, a, this prejudice that was driving this in some deliberate way, it was likely just the general difficulties. Different peoples, different languages, and different needs in the church, and these different language groups of different house churches and different homes. It was challenging. Again, tens of thousands of people. Nonetheless, this complaint, it arose from the Greek-speaking Jews, from the Hellenists, against the Hebrews. So while it may have been unintentional, the complaint, again, implies definite ethnic unfairness, we could say. So the complaint, you see it, it's not to the apostles, we're not getting enough food. Look at the way Luke records it. And so lack of food is certainly behind the complaint, but that's not what they're saying. They're complaining against the other party. Hellenists rose up and complained against the Hebrews. It's the way that Luke records this. It's become personal. It, it, it's, it, the church is beginning to split. You can see already this little friction is, is forming this line of division between these two groups along language and cultural lines. It's becoming tribal, we could say. Us versus them. This complaint, Hellenist against the Hebrews. The complaint, the, it's a onomatopoetic word. There's your big fancy word of the day here. And, 
and uh, you students remember this, know this word, your parents may remember it, but it's that in Greek, and it's a word that that means the way it sounds. And what I mean, so we have this in English, uh, several words, but think of the word sizzle, sizzle. We get that word, and we know what it means by the way it sounds, sizzling bacon, it's sizzle, you know, we get that. There's a lot of words like that. Well, this in Greek, the, the word here for com- complaint is ganguzmas. Ganguzmas. And you, it is that onomatopoetic word. It, it, you can hear the grinding of the teeth almost as you say this. And that's intended to evoke the meaning and give the meaning by the, even the way the word sounds. And we have English words, honestly, that capture this same idea. Murmur. Murmur. Or grumbling. Sin. This complaint. Complaining. That's the idea here. So you can, you can see this as some, some heat that's building from this friction. There's grumbling, complaining, ganguzmas. The church is breaking apart. It's splitting into two. There's about to be a second Baptist church in Jerusalem if we're not careful here. No offense to my Baptist brothers and sisters that may be here. I've, I've, I understand those realities well from my own childhood. But make no mistake about it. This, is, this is the strategy of the enemy, isn't it? Of the devil. And it has not changed. The divide and to conquer. This is what he tries to do in the church. Ephesians 4. My wife and I were talking about this last night. I know ladies are, have been studying this together and on Tuesday mornings. In the context of Paul talking about the importance of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, he warns against letting anger, you could say complaining, Rumbling, anger, bitterness, that taking root in the church and giving an opportunity to the devil. Giving a foothold to the devil through our anger. This is, Jesus understood this. He knew this was coming. This is why just before he goes to the cross, he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for us in what we call the high priestly prayer there in John 17. And what does he pray? That He prays for the unity of the church. That they may be one. This is you, Father, and me. But as we're one, Baraka, there will be problems. There will be friction. There will, that, that will come as a result of growth and diversity, which is the result and the, which is going to come with God's blessing in us and through us. And these might lead to, at times, unintended neglect. It may not be widows being overlooked, but there are versions of this that we experience in the church today. As the church grows and as needs become greater and more diverse and different kinds and different people, so some may experience unintended neglect. And that could give birth to lingering, unresolved grievances. Complaining, murmuring. And we must, we must not take these things lightly. We, we can't ignore them in our own hearts when we see that tendency growing in us and we can't ignore them when we hear them in the body. But how do we respond? How do we respond to these complaints? And that's what brings us to the bulk of the passage here. Or better, how does God, how does God help us when these kinds of problems and complaints arise? What does God do? Well, that's the final point. God gives grace-gripped leaders to help. He gives grace-gripped leaders to help. So verse 2, And the twelve summon the full number of the disciples. And so the, the twelve, those are the twelve that have been set apart by Christ. They gather the church together. Now, again, tens of thousands of people. Were there, was every member uh, 
it, part of this meeting where they represented those from the house churches. I don't think the language makes that explicit. But they, they, they gather together, and the apostles, the twelve, they establish this basic principle in verse 2. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I don't know how that sounds to you. I mean, maybe it sounds like a little whining. That's not fair. we got to give up the thing we want to do so we can help these widows over here. That's not the, that's not the tone you need to read this. That's not what they're saying by it's not right. They're, 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 not, they're not whining. They're not downplaying uh, this problem or minimizing uh, this, this issue. They're saying it's not appropriate. It's not right. And it's not right to neglect our Christ-given commission, our call as apostles to teach and to bear witness to Christ in order to address what is a very important need. So it's clear from all that follows, they're not minimizing, they're not dismissing this need of, uh, of these widows, but God has set them apart for this very specific word-centered task for the good of the church and for the blessing of the nations, as we're going to see. So God gives the apostles this, this wisdom, and, and this is from God through the work of the Spirit in them that's demonstrated in how they go about this. They've been taught by grace to respond in this very wonderful way here. They're humble. They honestly admit a problem. Their system is broken. It's not working. And they admit it. But they need to stay on task as well. The ministry of the Word and the prayer. And so grace has taught the twelve here to stay humble, to be humble and stay on task. They're, they're not, you notice, they're not indifferent. They're not demeaning. They're not defensive. They're not controlling here. And this is all evidence of the Lord's gracious work in their lives. If you, if you remember anything about these guys from the Gospel of Luke or from the Gospel accounts, you got to just marvel here at this response. And you can't say, man, these are just naturally, you know, just, just good people. These guys just, they're patient and they're long suffering and they're sympathetic. That's just the kind of people that Jesus chose. No! They're not that at all naturally. This is the work of grace in them. This is the work of the Spirit in them. These are the same guys we read about in the Gospels who despite seeing Jesus just demonstrate extraordinary patience and compassion towards people who were, were deemed insignificant and unimportant in that society. The, 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 the lame and, and the beggars and, and those with disabilities and the blind and the, the leper. All these people that are kind of pushed to the margins. As Jesus, they're watching Jesus at, do those things and, and, and move towards people in love. They're unsympathetic and they're impatient and they're unmoved so often by the needy. That's what we read in the gospel accounts. When Jesus is going through Jericho, you remember on his way to Jerusalem, and what they get so frustrated and so bent out of shape because there's this blind beggar that won't stop shouting from the side of the road, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Luke says, as, as, Luke, or as, as the Gospel writer records this, it's Mark, he basically says, everyone around tried to shut him up. That's my translation. This is poor, blind Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. He, he wouldn't stop shouting, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And what did Jesus do? He stops the whole parade. And, and he turns to him and he says, what can I do for you? And he says, Rabbi, let me get my sight back. Now my hunch, again, from what, what is recorded there, 
by Mark is that Peter and the others are probably looking at their watches or whatever their version, looking at the sun, and they're thinking, maybe even saying, come on, Jesus, we got to get to Jerusalem. Not again. Don't stop now. Do we, well, why bother with this guy? But then we get to Acts 6. It's different. It's not, they're not that way anymore. Now through the transforming grace of the Spirit, they're saying, hey, listen, it's Greek-speaking widows among us. They're in need. And they're complaining that they're being overlooked. And we need to stop what we're doing. We need to pay attention. We need to help. And the way that they, the way that they move in this is not, uh, let's take it all on ourselves. Again, they, they're trusting Jesus to lead and provide for His church through really ordinary means. And so notice that they say, notice how they say the seven are to be selected. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. They don't take this on themselves, but they trust that the Lord will work through this, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they come, they give some basic criteria and say, you select them. It demonstrates, again, it's not demonstrating how much they trusted the congregation. It's demonstrating how much they trusted the Lord to work through these ordinary means. Now, we have no clue what the actual process involved. That's, again, not the point. I'd love to know what went on in that church meeting and how that was conducted. Did they take, you know, nominations through their church app or paper slips or something? Or or uh, was there like a runoff election for some of these guys? Uh did you know someone stand up, some charismatic person give a really emotional appeal that kind of galvanized everybody around these seven people? I don't know, but we know that somehow the church deter- determined that Stephen and Philip and these other others were the kind of men that the Lord was providing for them. They saw these guys. They could be trusted to look after the widows. And as it turns out, all of their names are Greek. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they were Hellenists, because uh, there were other Hebrews that used Greek names at this time. But it could be that all of the seven, uh, the ones that are put in charge of here, the church's ministry to, of mercy, were part of that Greek-speaking church by their names. Now, if that's the case, you put yourself in the shoes of an Aramaic-speaking widow, and you're thinking, oh no, now they're going to give all of the food to their people, not to us. But that's that's not what we find. The apostles, the church, they trust that Christ, listen, they trust that Christ is working through His Spirit to, to work through these very ordinary means of selecting these Spirit-filled men. It's not they're trusting the process. It's not that they're trusting one another. It's not that they're trusting these guys. They're trusting the Lord. And while that's happening, they, the twelve, will remain focused on their central calling and task, the word of Jesus. And so verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles, gripped by grace, taught by grace, are used by the Lord to see that the widow's needs are provided for while they remain devoted to prayer and to ministering the word. Concerned, listen, concerned involvement in needs like this, it doesn't mean we we have to lose our priorities. So the apostles, they found a way to meet the congregations and the way the Lord worked here to provide, to meet the congregation's needs and material needs and solve this real important issue without setting aside their main priorities. That's a difficult but a needed balance, isn't it, in the church? 
And, and you notice it's the ministry of the word and it's prayer. Those are un, there's an unbreakable bond between those two. And I think we often miss that in our own context. Both are critical. Both are critical. The ministry of the word, the ministry of prayer. That's the 12. So that's what the grace taught them. And then you see grace taught the seven to serve the needy. Verse five. And what, and, and what they, the 12 said, it pleased the whole gathering. Everybody was good with it. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So these seven guys, they're not jockeying for position. They want, they're jockeying to be picked. They're not, they didn't work to hard to qualify themselves. What is the text? What's the indication here? It was ultimately the Spirit who qualified them. Their lives were directed by the fullness of the Spirit in them. That's what gave them wisdom, and that's what gave them integrity of a good, a good reputation. These seven Spirit-filled, grace-gripped, grace-taught men are set apart. They're charged to meet the needs of the marginalized and the needy in their church. And they're set before the apostles who prayed for them, who laid their hands on them. And laid their hands. Well, that's an image that we see throughout Scripture. It's it's basically it's 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 used, it's this gesture that symbolizes passing something intangible from one person to another. And so this could be everything from a blessing to guilt to judgment to authority to the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see later in Acts. So those are all ways this is done. The New Testament adopts this. The church adopts this as a as a way of commissioning people for special service. And we're going to see this again elsewhere in the book of Acts. So you have these seven guys. Stephen, again, the description is further for him, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, because he's the next guy that's going to be, that we're going to pick up with after Resurrection Sunday. He's going to be the focus of the next chapter and a half, really. And so, he's a mercy minister. We're going to see, he will boldly testify to the truth about Christ, even to his dying breath. Look down at verse 8. We see he's described as full of grace and power. And he's used by God in word to testify to Christ, the resurrected Christ, but also in deed. He's going to perform signs and wonders. Word, deed. We'll learn more about Philip in chapter 8. He'll be the focus there. We don't really know anything else about the others. The last name on the list, Nicolaus, is described as this proselyte from Antioch. In other words, he was born a Gentile. He in, into this pagan family, and yet he came to trust in the God of Israel. He was converted, converted to Judaism. And then, when he hears the gospel, he comes to trust that Jesus is the Messiah, though. So he becomes a Christian. And so this Gentile, one of the seven, he's from Antioch in Syria, and it, this is going to be the town that's going to be so critical in the gospel's advance going, moving forward and going to the ends of the earth. It's from here that there will be this vibrant, multi-ethnic church that sends, sends people out to far and distant lands with the gospel. This missionary sending church. And so to, so to deal, this is the point, to deal with the friction that was brought on by the wonderful blessing that, that of God that came in this growth and diversity in this church, the Lord worked to provide these grace-gripped leaders to help. That's the idea. Word and deed. Mercy ministry and word ministry. Preaching, prayer, and mercy. 
same blend, same balance is needed always in the church. Do we exhibit this or are we imbalanced in some way in this regard? A couple other quick applications before we, we conclude. One, just say qualified leadership doesn't guarantee an absence of problems. You can be, again, all leaders are sinful and flawed, but they can be good, capable, biblically qualified leaders in the church who are filled with and led by the Holy Spirit, but you're still going to have problems in the church. Even a healthy, growing church like this one. The 12, I mean 11 of them were trained by Jesus himself for, for three years. They were under the close, personal, direct supervision supervision of the Messiah himself, and yet problems still plague the church under their leadership. Second, growth and other blessings, other strengths in the church, they don't excuse what are real unmet needs. What I mean, what we see here, the, the apostles, they, they listened to what they deemed a legitimate complaint. And they did something about it. They didn't defend themselves against the accusation of favoritism. They didn't, they didn't ignore the problem as something that was kind of beneath their level of concern. This doesn't, this doesn't matter to us. They didn't ignore the problem as something that was, uh, or minimize this or dismiss this issue. They didn't discredit the people who were complaining. Oh, it's just those Hellenists. They listened, and then they saw this as an op- opportunity to address an unmet need, the way the Lord was working. I just, I just implore you and, and beg you to pray. Pray for those who minister the Word in our congregation and other churches, and pray for those who minister mercy. These are, these are difficult things at times. While this isn't about elders and deacons per se, I think you can see how this differentiated roles that develops later in the New Testament maybe has some seminal roots that go back to this passage. So pray for our elders. We meet today. Pray for our deacons. Pray for humility. Pray for focus. Pray for unity. Pray for faith to trust the Lord. Pray for a dependence upon God that's manifested in prayer. The way we pray for the congregation. Pray for compassion. Pray for patience. Pray for endurance. For joy. Well, the conclusion is in verse 7. And there's this summary statement. It's just beautiful and powerful. And the Word of God continued to increase. You, again, you see this moment like, oh, here it could go off the rails here. These factions accusing one another, complaining against one another. This doesn't look good. The Lord works. The Lord provides. And again, it's His work. And what do we see? And the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Now it's not as clear in English, and I'm not trying to make you suspicious of your English translations, but it's it's just there's a depth of, of meaning here in the Greek language here that doesn't always come across. And and there are the, each one of these verbs here in verse seven, they're what we call imperfect, uh, they're imperfect tense, and it doesn't mean they're defective. It just means it's talking about a past um, some past continual action. This is something that was going on continually in the past. That's what each of these verbs. So the word was continually, habitually, constantly increasing and growing. The message of the gospel was spreading successfully. And disciples were continually being multiplied. 
and, and even that, it's, it's passive. It's indicating this is God's work. They weren't multiplying themselves. They were being multiplied. This is the work of God. He was bringing about, causing faith, causing this growth. And the priests were continually becoming obedient to the faith. It's another way of expressing they were trusting in Christ. They were being saved. These, and these particular conversions end up causing a, quite a stir and leading to a lot of alarm for the Jewish authorities and leaders, as we're going to see. So, again, this is the idea. This word growth, supported by compassionate deeds, it fosters church growth. That's, the, that's, the, that's what comes together here. This mercy ministry, it serves the church's word ministry, and, and they're both mutually supportive, uh, both to its own and in the witness to the wider community. How is that true? Well, I just as we close, for one, I, I think one of the ways the word ministry serves or the mercy ministry serves the church's word ministry is that obviously it frees up the apostles here to concentrate on what they're called to do, to focus on preaching and teaching the word and announcing the resurrection of Jesus. So that's that's obvious. I think there's another way though. It, it shows up, it shows the power of the gospel of Christ to bring change in a community. And for one, it's a powerful testimony when you have these different groups that they're, they, they can be seen working together in a world that's so often divided along those lines. Hellenists and the Hebrews, here they're together and they work through it. It's beautiful, it's powerful. But also, it's a powerful testimony to see the needy cared for in real, tangible, loving ways. And I want you to notice that last line. This is, to me, very powerful. Verse 7 and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why put that in? Why talk about these priests? Is this just like shock value? Say, yeah, and there were also priests that came to faith. Is it that kind of? I mean, there may be a version of that. There may be some truth to that. But earlier in chapters three and four, we learn we learn that the, the priests, particularly the chief priests, they're overtly hostile to the gospel. There were around 18,000 priests serving in Israel at this time. 8,000 of those approximately would have been Sadducean priests. These are kind of the professional priests that work in the temple uh, primarily and like the high priestly class, that kind of thing. And then there were these 10,000 or so Levitical priests. The Sadducean priests, again, they're the professionals. This, they're, the, they're the ones we tend to think. The Levitical priests, they generally lived elsewhere. They would have been out in other places, up in Galilee. They, they worked... Uh, they worked trades most of the year, and then they had these two weeks where they came to the temple and performed their service in the temple. And then they would go back and fishing and farming and doing other things. And they had they had some obligations in the synagogues, but it was it was it, they were just kind of the run of the mill, blue collar, uh, bivocational, we could say, everyday priests. It could have it could have been that priests from both of these groups uh, came to trust in Christ. But I'd say it's probably more likely that that latter group is who we find here in great numbers coming to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, here's Justin's theory, so don't, don't take this to the bank yet, but consider this possibility. As I'm thinking about this a lot this week, I think it's in part because these priests saw in the church what they should have been seeing throughout Israel's history. The widows and the needy being cared for humbler class of priests. I think they identified with the needy. And they saw in the church's care for the widows and for the other needy, they, the, the compassion 
with which the Lord had called Israel to. But they had failed over and over again. I mean, the Levitical priests themselves, they lived in part off of the support from the tithes and the offerings of Israel. Uh, to Israel. So remember, the Levites, they had no tribal inheritance in the land. They had n- nothing in the land of promise. They, didn't, they couldn't own land. Their tribe wasn't, wasn't given uh, a portion land. They were to serve in the Lord's house. That's, why, that's what the Lord called this particular tribe in Israel to. And therefore, they would be provided for with gifts from the other tribes. And so not only would the priest receive this provision, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 29, we read that the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, but that's not all, and the sojourner, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hands that you do. So the priests, they saw these widows in the church being cared for in, in, in ways that they should have always been caring for widows in Israel. This is what God called them to. Now you remember back chapter 4, when Luke's describing the, the way the early church is caring for the needy through the apostles, and they're, you know, people are selling property and giving it, laying at the apostles' feet, and they're distributing it to anybody as they have need. Remember? Luke made this powerful comment. And it was this, there was not a needy person among them. Now, obviously, by the time we get into chapter 6, that's changed. This has been overwhelming. But at the time, there's not a needy person among them. And that particular term, needy, is not, is not used anywhere else by Luke. Now, again, Luke is the gospel writer of all of them that is very interested in Christ's ministry to the poor. His ministry in word and in deed. Caring for the marginalized, caring for the outcast, but he always uses a different word for needy in every other case except right here. But here he uses this particular word in saying no needy person was among them. Why? Now this is not just in being theoretical here. This is, this is kind of the line that I got to where I just said what I just said. Several commentators pick this up and make this connection. It's because Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to hear an echo from the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 15. I read 14.29, chapter 15. Right after those words at the end of chapter 14 about the Levites, the sojourners, the widows, the fatherless, being cared for through the, through the, through the temple and through the people of Israel, being provided for, what does God go on to say? He says, there are not to be any needy people among you. If you care for the outcast, there won't be a needy person. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's the same word, needy. And Luke grabs that word and he uses it there in Luke chapter, or in Acts chapter 4. And I think what Luke's saying is what God told Israel, what they failed to do, is now happening in the church. There's not a needy person among them. And of course, then if that's happening, if the word ministry of the apostles is growing and it's, and it's not just being supported by this mercy ministry, but it's actually being confirmed by it, as, 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 then, and it's being led by the seven. If that's happening, that's a beautiful thing and a powerful witness to these Levitical priests. And so Luke's point in giving us this paragraph in Acts 6, again, it's not, again, I think so we can have this deacon manual or how to f- fix issues in the church that are, when there's problems. What he wants us to see is the ministry of the word and the ministry of mercy, they go hand in hand. 
The word ministry is supported by, it's complemented by, it's demonstrated in terms of its life-changing power in the way that the church cares for one another, particularly for those in our community uh, who are really needy. And this is the very thing that as Luke records this account, this is the very thing God uses to see the gospel spread out and grow past Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you that you you loved in word and in deed. You told us you loved us and you demonstrated your love for us in this and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, our hope is not our hope is not in being better at being good. Our hope is that even though we are bad to the core with our mouths and with our lives, Lord, we don't love in word and deed, yet we are loved by you, loved by God who sent Christ to die for our sins. Jesus, you loved us to the end. And hallelujah, Christ, you who died and for our sins, you rose on the third day, you conquered death, guaranteed resurrection life to all of us who look to you by faith and and we do lord we confess that today we trust you trust in jesus and so we ask lord that you would use us then as undeserving as unimpressive as messed up as we so often are that you would use us as instruments in your hand to testify to the truth about christ even this week that we would open our lips to Tell others that Jesus died and rose again for them. That you would help us to invite friends and co-workers and neighbors and family members to come and hear this incredible news next Sunday. And you would bring in a harvest of souls for your name's sake, Lord. As we testify to your truth in word and deed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.